and you're structured, so you're not just talking to yourself. Um, then you've got to actually listen to other people. I have like feedback, and I'm a three, so I get it. Like feedback for three is just like catnip. And we we love to get feedback, even even if it's negative feedback, because we tell ourselves, "Well, I'll make me better. Like, I'll be better. I'll grow. I'll be better." <laughs> so we just want feedback, feedback, feedback. Some of that has to do with knowing what church you're in. Churches, too, typical churches are organisms. And because that's the truth, your church probably has an Enneagram style. Hey, welcome to this episode of the Pastors Roundtable Podcast where we give practical roadmaps for rising leaders to thrive in life and leadership. Today, I'm speaking with Sean Palmer, who is the a teaching pastor, he's a speaker, executive coach, and the author of a couple of books, uh, 40 Days of Being a Three. And uh, the one we're going to be talking about diving in today is Speaking by the Numbers. Uh, great communicator. And this book is is about communication. And uh, as rising leaders, so many of us are communicating on a daily basis to leaders, to students, to parents. And so great conversation. Hey, Sean, thanks for jumping in and uh, excited to to jump in today. Thanks, Ron. Excited to be here. Excited to have this conversation. And always excited to talk about the yeah, so good, man. So, hey, why don't you just give us a little bit of your backstory, a little bit of your uh, ministry journey? We can kind of take it from there. Well, I'm pretty old now. So, the ministry journey story just gets longer and longer. Um, you know, the, the quick version is uh, I grew up in in the church in Mississippi, in Georgia, as a kid. I'm a Church of Christ kid, raising, uh, went to Abilene Christian University, did undergraduate degree there, and you can say a lot of Went to work as a student minister. Over time, became more interested in communication and preaching, went back to school while I was working vocationally to study homiletics, did moved around a couple of times in Houston, had a church here, and then our family went to California. We were there for three years, came back to Texas to be closer to family and friends. Uh, and started so this wonderful little church in uh, the in central Texas for the last six years been the teaching pastor here in Houston at FLCA Houston, which was founded a little bit over twenty years ago by my friend Chris C. Chris is still our lead pastor. We have been friends almost since the family of Ecclesia. And when, uh, they were going multi-site in the country. We were literally saying, like, can you do something with this? And so um, we're committed to a version of incarnational living. In-person teaching really matters. And so when... Oh, we were making that transition as a church. He gave, gave me a call on a Tuesday night and said, hey, um, I need you to come down here and be teaching pastor with me, carry the, the teaching load. So we've done that. We've us with other companies. So we have three campuses now. And that's what I do. I 
pretty much live in the world, the world of like writing and speaking. It's a world of words. I'm fortunate to be in a church to handle that domain and, and to be the primary guider by teaching and teaching that we are surrounded by an incredible ministry. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. They write and speak a lot in that. Yeah. So incarnational living, that's such a good, 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 love, you know, good lane, but as that grows, right, as the church has grown, I'm sure that's had to kind of morph and change. Talk about that a little bit, as that, how, that's, how you've kept that as a primary focus, but as the church grows, it can be kind of a struggle, I'm sure. It is, and a lot of that is accessibility. So I think I heard Kate Beatty describe celebrity as this idea of influence and activity. And one of the things that we are trying to center is being People who are guiding your church whose full time vocation is to pay attention to the church. And those are people that you can actually walk up to, you can schedule a meeting, you can send a text, you can go to them. To close the gap between folks you see on stage, which churches, especially over the last 30 years, become more and more and more stage centered and less and less table centered. And we want to be a place where the table is still central. You can, you can, you can, other people on You can know their, you can know their kids. You get to know their story, and we want to know yours. And if you can't do that, and this is not, there are different strategies for different churches at different seasons in their life. For us, we feel like there is something plastic. About the idea of seeing someone on a stream that you can't come up to after worship and say, This really blessed me, or this thing that you're talking about. I, for one, as a communicator, don't know how I would be able to communicate and preach in this theater. I want to know where people are. So, there are ways to do that in smaller churches and churches that are even larger than ours. There's a lot of churches that are. Different churches have to go back to different There is a piece of so pushing against this culture of celebrity, pushing against culture of ego, of kingdom building. Like we're only interested in, in one kingdom, individual kingdoms. So those are ways that we have tried to address those problems. I know that there are other attempts in other places to be equally faithful. Yeah, so good. Well, Sean, I first came across uh, you with uh, the book uh, 40 Days of Being a Three. And uh, obviously, this is all about the Enneagram and specifically being a type three. Um, and so let's just kind of go back a little bit. Maybe just give for those that aren't totally familiar with the Enneagram, just give us kind of a short snap look at uh, kind of what the Enneagram is. So, Enneagram is an ancient personal belief. And I get lots of questions of where did it come from? I kind of go and pull the origin of the Enneagram. Um, and the answer is that no one really knows 
see shades of it through history. It has come to many contemplative strains of lots of different religions. And um, is doing some work Just like if you're open up the book, Yeah, so why do you feel like the Enneagram is so helpful for ministry leaders? I know we were 
before we even started recording, you kind of talked about how you've kind of integrated it into some of the practices you're using there, even at your church. So why do you feel like it's so important for ministry leaders? What's important to me for ministry life is that the Enneagram helps us identify and name what our motivations are. And that's the where, where, where people actually live, where other personality typing systems and theories can talk a lot about behavior. And the Enneagram talks about motivations. The two people who are different types, for instance, can have the same behavior, but perform those behaviors for really different reasons. And once you know for yourself, for instance, why this matters to you so much, structured in such a way, why is person structured in such a way? Then you can kind of move through knowing to either adapting or changing or nurturing those motivations. So if you say to me like this very next question, there is a you go to a party, are you more comfortable being in the center of the party where things are or on the outskirts of the party, having a one-on-one conversation with yourself. Well, it depends on the party. If it's my birthday party, I want to be in the center because all of those people, presumably, I know, and I also know that all those people came to celebrate my birthday party. I'm also from the center. I was raised in the center. So to talk to one person in the corner, during my birthday party, it just really, I wouldn't want to do that. I have a certain motivation in that moment that is about my connection with other people. If it's a party of a spouse and a and there's only one other person that I know, and we spend an extended amount of time in the corner talking, that's probably okay. We'll never, never see these people again. Um, so behavior doesn't doesn't tell us all that much. Motivation tells us a whole lot. These people in the church other people don't want to do Why do I feel that like when I'm called upon to teach in a public setting, this is a very common issue for people in ministry. And there's something that excites me about that and I want to do it. Like why do I want to do that? Like do I want to preach? Because like there is this truly spiritual burning in my attention. But if I like attention and I get it. Does that mean that I'm good at this, or it means that I'm getting my ego stroke, or per- part of my personality structure that's being nurtured? And what happens if I really want the attention, and then I'm very good at it, and someone points out to me that I'm not very good? Do I then feel a person or community? Um, and all of that behavior can't tell you. If you explore the Enneagram, especially once you get back, you know, coffee shop, 
you begin to explore on a deeper level what all this means and how it works. Because it is um, it is much more than just someone knowing their number. But most people who think they know the Enneagram don't know that there's more to it than knowing your number. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the the big thing, right? There's so many social media, you know, uh, memes out there with you know a three wants this for Christmas and an eight wants this for Christmas. A lot of us we kind of feel like we know quite a bit of those kind of social things, but I love what you're saying about going deeper. And so, you know, as as a younger leader, we're working with volunteers. Um, are, do you feel like there's some tips on kind of helping us interact with our volunteers in, through the lens of the Enneagram? I mean, is that like, hey, this type might work better in this type of volunteer capacity or this? Or is it kind of, you know, kind of just how to help keep them motivated? How, how would you say we can infuse this into our volunteers? Oh, yeah, totally. Because honestly, the more you the more helpful you can be with them on their journey. So one of the dangers, Ryan, of the Enneagram is when it becomes a weapon to use against other people. So the Enneagram is a weapon when used against others or against others. It is a tool when used for yourself. So the first step in ministry is to know yourself well. You're working with people, and so you're going to run up against things. So let's say that you've got a volunteer who, for you, feels intransigent. Like they always have something negative to say, no matter what you're trying to do, trying to push forward, or it could be a coworker, a fellow staff member. Um, they, you come into the meeting, you've got something you want to roll out that you're super excited about. And what they start doing is like questioning it to death. Well, what about this? And what about this? And how's this going to work? How's that going to work? Those things are necessary to run something There are certain there's certain Enneagram who interpret that kind of questioning, not as questions, but as questions. And so they feel that they are being called incompetent or mm. position is being And you've got a person over here who because of their personality structure, let's just say that they're they're a six on the Enneagram. And the more you're able to answer their questions, the more secure they feel about the direction that this is headed. And so they're not asking the question and being negative about the idea. They're not asking the question because they are coming at it to help me feel secure about this. And so one of the key things about the Enneagram is one of the things that is the centerpiece speaking to me is intelligence. And so inside the Enneagram, uh, the teaching is that we all have three intelligence centers and those intelligence centers Thinking, feeling, and doing. And the reality is, we all think, we all feel, and we all do. And so imagine yourself like a three legged stool. But very early in our experience, one of those intelligence centers is wounded. And what we say to ourselves is, I'll never try that again. Either in my family of origin or with a primary caregiver, I got the message that that intelligence center was not going to be successful. So we have over then relied on the other two to get us through life. And if you live long enough, you will hit a wall where you realize that relying on two intelligence centers is not enough to get you through. So what 
happens is one of those intentions, and it doesn't happen for everyone, one of those becomes done. And that's the way that you pretty much move through the world. And one of those becomes repressed, and you never use it. You've been going and talking to your volunteers. You've got a room full of And you've got a great idea that you think needs to be this way. Because let's say you're thinking dumb. You're thinking dumb And you're kind of laying it all out there. And then you realize you're getting more pushback than you anticipated. That might be because everyone in the room is not thinking dumb. Some of them are thinking repressed. And you know, one of the things I do in the book is I, I define thinking, feeling, and doing because some folks very, get very upset when they realize that they are repressed in one of those. So ones, twos, and sixes, thinking, thinking repressed. So my was a one. And when she discovered that she was thinking repressed, um, was said, that can't possibly be true. I think which is absolutely true. And so one of the ways to think about your repression is the thing that costs you more energy. It's not that you don't do it. It just costs you more energy to do it. So she goes, she leaves work every day. She's teaching all day. She's making decisions all day. She comes home and that intelligence center, because she's thinking with press, um, is exhausted. So what does she do when she gets home? She asks me She wants me to make all the decisions. And for her, this is moving toward, because one season six is moving toward people. There are multiple ways to talk about this. So you've got three centers, um, you've got three numbers, one, two, and six is two. Um, thinking repressed, you've got three sevens and eights, two uh, feeling repressed, and you've got four sevens and nines who are doing this. <laughs> uh, so, but some folks are fours or fives, or like, they work really all day. They're doing stuff all day that costs them so much money. So when it comes to working with staff, when it comes to working with volunteers, one of the things, one of the places we need to be careful with is um, leveling communication so that everyone is communicated with in a way that feels native to them and in a way that feels like they have to do a little bit of work to get there. Because what we want total is the three-legged stool to come into balance. They can never come into balance, but people are never asked to use their thing. So we have to do a little bit of that. But we also have to say, you know, when someone comes to me, I've just had a very vivid experience of this with our staff this week. And it is just all feelings, 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 feelings. Because I'm a three, I'm feeling repressed. So I'm also feeling dominant. So feel what they're feeling and get what they're feeling. I just don't think it matters what you feel. So when people say, like, I just feel run down, I was like, well, that's great. We've got work to do. Feelings aren't like, let's get on with the work. And so I need, unfortunately, I need people in my world that help me sit with feelings. And other people need folks who make them think and ask questions. Other folks need people to 
get up and do something and just mill around doing lots of things that don't have So those are some of the ways in ministry. And the sooner you know that, the better you can, especially when you're younger in ministry. So one of the things that, at this point, I guess I'm going to say, I've been full-time vocational ministry for 26 years. And here's what I knew I did as a young in terms of when I was in the student ministry, there was nothing that I could say that would story to what I was saying to parents who had raised two, three kids. And here I was in the school with, you know, an 18 month. different understanding of who they were rather than what I knew be much more successful. Because the reality of ministry, I don't know if people say this you probably should in a nice way. But I think young pastors, young ministers need to know you don't have anything close to a thus saith the Lord in terms of the people in your church. Like you saying it means very little. And if you can demonstrate something actually works, that actually functions, then you start to build credibility and folks go, oh yeah, you know what? He is, she is wise beyond their year. Wisdom is proved in practice not in speech. And so that's what like, I wish I would have known the Enneagram sooner because I would have known better how to communicate with people who weren't giving me the benefit of the doubt based on So good. So I, I want to let you know that you pull no punches. And uh, I knew that this was going to be uh, a good um person to connect with when I read day one of the uh, 40 days of being a three. Let me just read a little section to let you know why, again, coming back to that motivation, right? And knowing uh, the motivation between uh, behind what we do and why we do it is so important in ministry. And uh, I think there's a lot of us uh, young in ministry that are type threes. And I want to read this little section and just feel like if you get kicked in the gut like I did, it says this. It says, as an Enneagram 3, the, uh, the bear on my back every day is the temptation to be seen, uh, to be heard, to be considered, to be worthwhile as I show off in a show-off culture who gets rewarded for showing off. And the reward for showing off is more opportunities to show off. We call this success, but as a friend of mine asked, if a three succeeds and no one is there to see it, did it really happen? <laughs> that was my first introduction to you. And I said, I need to dive in deep with this guy. And so over the next few days, reading this book, it just uh, kept 
just just speaking to me uh, in so many deep levels that um, so many leadership books, you know, are kind of broad and they're just kind of, you know, uh, hitting everybody. But what I love about, uh, you know, the Enneagram, like you talked about, is it gets to those core motivations as to what we're doing and why we're doing it and um, helping our volunteers even to know that and to understand themselves. Uh, and so in the in the book, uh, speaking by the numbers, you talk about triads, you talk about stances. Uh, you want to just give kind of a, you know, kind of a working definition there as we dive into these? Sure. Um, I've talked a little bit about them already. So those of and the good thing about the book is that it has different things. So you can you can see all of it. So triads, um, if you know the Enneagram, you've been in, you've been introduced to triads. And so that's what I was talking about. There are three of them, so I call them eight nines and ones. And triads also determine what in which intelligence center you're dominant. So if we take intelligence centers, remember those three, thinking, feeling, and doing. There are three numbers that are dominant in each one of them. Ace, nines, and ones are dominant in doing, in the doing intelligence center. That's the gut triad. Two, threes, and fours. And the feeling the shame. So they are dominant in feeling. And then five, sixes, and sevens are the thinking triad. So they are thinking dominant. Now, if you've seen the Enneagram diagram, you will note that three, six, and nine are the dominant and in the same center. So let me talk about what is the intelligence center that is repressed in you. And the ways that those shake out is that ones, twos, and sixes in the thinking center, they're called dependent stance. And some people call those reactive stance. Ones, twos, and sixes. That means that their instinct is to move toward others. So ones, twos, and sixes move toward others. Fourth and nine So that means they're doing repressed. So that means that they move away from others. Threes, sevens, and eights are in the aggressive stance, which means that they are feeling repressed, which means they move against. So four five. One, two, and six is dependent stance, four, fives, and nines, withdrawing stance, three, sevens, and eights, the aggressive or the assertive. So your triad name, which intelligence center you're dominant in, and your stance, or what's also called a manual group, named for a determine which intelligence center you're repressed. So those you will notice, like I mentioned before, three, three, six, and nine and dominant in the same intelligence center. So three is feeling dominant, feeling repressed, doing dominant, and doing repressed. Six is thinking dominant, thinking repressed. 
there's no way to talk about getting into the deep weeds of Enneagram theory. So that's why it's on page 36 of the book. It's, it's hard to note without diagrams and being able to reference back and forth. So, but the main, like, I don't talk about physically. So what it means is, as a feeling, I can walk into a room and know what that means to me. I can sit down and assess that feeling. But it means that I don't use feelings to maneuver into the world. So that same thing is true. It's about the productive use of that. Here's the beautiful thing. Because the intelligence center that you're dominant, because you decide, because it got way more good, you decide that, hey, you're going to go there, you're going to use this, it's in the work. It's the most pure and pristine part of you. Because you shielded it your whole life. Um, but it also means that it's the most immature part of you because you haven't used it your whole life. And so if there's a it is in And if we're going to receive or enter the kingdom as a child, that's where the gold is because that's the most childlike So good. Now, there's a lot there, obviously. Uh, that's why there's a great book that I'd recommend, <laughs> Speaking by the Numbers, to unpack all that even more. But uh, you go through and you give some some communication tips for each of those. Um, you know, and again, this is more than just preaching, right? I mean, this is vision casting. This is in written communication. This is all kind of stuff. So you want to just give us kind of, I mean, like, you know, we're standing up in front of uh, an audience, right? How do we kind of incorporate some of these uh, communication tips into what we're doing? Yeah. And like what I said in the book is, first of all, it's really helpful for you to know your number, right? So we talked about we talked about knowing your number. We talked about trends, where you're dominant. But there's more to it than that. There is also what's called empathy, you know, empathics, which is answering the question of how do you And that's a whole different way. So before you go on, and you know, I see these things on TikTok and Instagram, people are talking about, you know, Four driving a car, you know, a seven at the grocery store. And like, Brian, like, they're all so stupid. And it really is just ignorant on, ignorance on parade. Because that's not how humans are structured. We're all truly unique and different. Um, and it's, it's, it's illustrative of someone who went to a weekend Enneagram workshop and then listened to some and thinks that they know what they're talking about. And so if you start to ask them, well, I don't want to get out of <laughs> The key thing, first of all, is to know your number because, as I tell in the book at the beginning of the book, the great danger when you're in a board meeting, you're with volunteers, 
you're with elders, you're with parents, you're with saints, is that you get up and you think the rest of the world perceives the world the same way that you do. And so in essence, you're just talking to yourself or the people in the room who do perceive the world as you do. Everybody else is going, what does it move me? What does it make me want to? It doesn't make me want to give to this new venture or to sacrifice or the number thing that churches invite their community into as ways and graces and, and, and deepening their spiritual discipline. So the first thing you have to do is you are so you're not just talking to yourself. But then you have to actually listen to other people. I'm a three, so I get it. Feedback for me is just, we, we love to get feedback. Even, even if it's negative feedback, because we tell ourselves, well, we So we want feedback, feedback, feedback. Some of that has to do with knowing what church you're in. Churches, too, typically, churches organized. And because that's the truth, your church probably has an Enneagram staff. Mm. So who are the leaders? Who are the founders? Who are the voices that do some things get done over and over and over? So I mentioned Chris C, who is a pastor. He's an A community. So years ago, just we were just sitting here in Asia Town in Houston, having dinner with him, and he said, you know what? Probably, probably asking the church to do a lot. And everybody else at the table is pretty. Absolutely. Like, you missed a new big venture every single week. You have people who say, I'm going to go take a break. See, we're going to go to be a break. And we're going to miss the morning. That's exhausting. Because they they receive those invitations and jump in. Uh, so as a communicator, as a leader, you need to know what am I doing to people because of the way that my personality is structured, which doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. You might be doing what's worst. So that's and then like, well, who are the other leaders around you? How structured this team? What voices what voices aren't being heard? When so and so asks their questions, um, are we a structure that suppresses those? Or when someone wants to start a new adventure, um, do we suppress it because they haven't answered all of us? Do we judge based on whether it was emotive or is there a machine in the worship? Like, because it creates, you know, you're creating a mood or something. Like, I don't, like, um, like some of us don't get that. I've been at places because of the way my personality is. I've spoken at places and walked into the middle of worship. And, like, it's 100 degrees outside in the summer. But the worship is beanie on and smoke and, like, light splitter, bean splitters on the lights. And, like, for me, I'm like, I don't even understand what this is. I know that's a personality thing, but the people planning the worship need to know that there are people like me who won't be engaged that way. 
which is not an argument to do or not do it. It is a realization that we need to, that we need to, to be aware. And so if that's going to be our steady diet, what in our community can we offer people? What is that speaks to who they are and the way that they perceive the world? So, answer, there are certain things with each person in the that if you do that certain thing to that person, you are likely to lose that. There won't be a question of forgiveness. There won't be a question of whether they love you. If you strive to deeply they have seen then that's going to cause a relational risk. Who wants to do that? Hmm. If it can be avoided, you're going to have enough of that over the course of your life. And you're so blessed if the two of you or the group of you can recover. You're going to do enough of that. So, my advice was to never offend anyone. I'm trying to offend people on purpose. And as a pastor and preacher, I have to do that every so often. I don't want to do it on accident. And I will. But I want to just narrow it to as minimal as it can be. Yeah, I think it's important, right? Because I think even as young leaders, I know for me, when I was first getting started, uh, I kind of was winging it, you know, and it was like, hey, next weekend, let's go on a missions trip. Right. And uh, and if people began to ask a lot of questions, it was kind of like, well, you're not bought into the vision. You don't believe that God's called us to go. And 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 like you said earlier, you know, it, it's some of those deep thinkers or um, those that have questions about what if they want to make make sure that those are answered and that we've thought through those not because they're questioning us, but because they want to support us and they want to be able to back us, right? And so making sure that we uh, value those voices and if that's not a strength of yours, inviting those voices in to our communication, our prep time and making sure and asking them, you know, hey, are we um, providing what you need? And uh, I, I think you're right, you know, if, if we're not careful, we'll only present the gospel through the lens of how we perceive it. That, you know, like as a three, you know, we're going to talk about all God's rewards and, and, and how we, you know, and it's like, well, God does more than just that. Right. Um, and so providing a way that, um, you know, somebody who is a, another type can see the gospel and it's spoken to them. In, in a way that they can receive it as well and making sure that we're working through that, which is tough, yeah. right? And one of the things I talk about in the last chapter of the book is exactly what you said, right? To write in community, it, it's very vulnerable for people who very low ego strength. And ego strength is different from ego. So one of the processes, I'm doing this next week. So I just sketched out this morning an upcoming teaching series for the summer. And 
next week we will sit down. I will sit down in a room with people who won't ever say it. We're on our staff, but won't ever say anything from our stage. Like they won't ever, and they will help us shape those messages. If your if your orientation to the church is like I'm large and in charge, whether it's in children's ministry or youth ministry, just give me a little detail. Which is the same as I wanted to say, and that trails on. Like, you'll be able to do that for a while and get away with it. And it's going to be so much richer when you begin to invite those people deliberately into that. Like, who needs, and the thing is, like, you don't have to ever do anything that they say. You have to follow Having something delivered, apparently, to the front door is so much. Um, to hear those other voices say, oh, like, well, what about this? And what about that? I, I gained so much. I'm 48 years old. I gained so much by 28 years old. Speaking to what I'm going to say. We have our first step in the section of She's the first working on staff who's born in the two. And she has a lot of things. She's five years removed from the age of my daughter, over 20 years removed from So, being able to handle gender perspective, age perspective, from married versus single. All of that really comes to the more layered the clearer and more focused and teaching and messages can be. And like you talked about, that takes a lot of um, emotional strength, uh, just even confidence in our own leadership, So, uh, which is tough. But uh, it's great and when you can begin to, I think it's easier to do that on the front end, right? Rather than on the back end, it's easier to do on the front end when we're preparing and invite those people in to help us. Rather than on the back end, like you said, people got offended, they got hurt, they weren't spoken to, and so they start leaving. It's much easier to do it on the front end and say, hey, let's, we, we want to value those different voices. So, Sean, so great. Uh, any last thoughts or how can uh, our listeners get a hold of you, kind of follow up with, with kind of what you're pr- providing out there with resources? Yeah, so uh, the easiest way to find me is just at Sean Isaac. And then like, folks just want to send an email and do coaching, both for speaking coaching and Enneagram. We also do like, church and business Enneagram coaching. So we work a lot with management and understanding teams. What we have found is whenever an organization has HR problems, what they would say is they have personality problems. You can come and it's it's a team of people years and years of coaching and in their toolbox. And so lots of ways, but that's easy. You can send me a message there and with anyone who's interested in going. Or was speaking. 
Yeah, so good. I want to encourage you guys uh, to take a look at the 40 days of being, and then they've got all the different numbers. I uh, want to encourage you guys also to uh, check out the book, Speaking by the Numbers. Just a, a great, great book in the tool belt as you're developing yourself as a communicator. And uh, I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Pastors Roundtable podcast. I hope that it gave you some practical roadmaps to help you thrive in life and in leadership. Uh, thank you guys so much and look forward to sharing another episode with you here soon. 